0: Welcome back to Menno HealthCast as I speak with Joe Longacre, who has been a member of MHF since its inception. Joe was one of the past board presidents of both Mennonite Medical Association and Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship. Joe, who's from Newport News, Virginia, completed his undergraduate work at Eastern Mennonite College, then went to the Medical College of Virginia, now part of Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. After his internship at St. Luke's Hospital in Pennsylvania, he served as a general practitioner for four years in Eastern Kentucky under Mennonite Central Committee. Joe moved to Harrisonburg, Virginia with his wife Constance in 2013 after he retired from his career as a gastroenterologist. He currently goes to Parkview Mennonite Church in Harrisonburg, where he is an active retiree. Joe, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, Joanne.
0: Can you tell me a bit about yourself, where you're from, your training?
1: Well, you've you've uh, summarized it very well. I grew up in Newport News, Virginia, went to Eastern Mennonite High School and college and then medical school in Richmond, and uh, did a rotating internship for one year in Pennsylvania. I was planning to be a surgeon in Africa under MCC, but my draft board said I had to do something immediately after my internship. So MCC was developing a medical program in Eastern Kentucky, Appalachia. So that's where I went. Did general practice in every respect, including surgery. And uh, OB was part of the hospital, regional hospital there, which was a a quite good quality hospital.
0: It's hard for me to imagine that after one year of internship, you went to this rural hospital and you just did every specialty there.
1: I did. I I did surgery because they only had one surgeon. I had to take call with him. I did appendectomies and with his help. I, mean, I did co with his help and took out appendices at night when he wasn't there. And I delivered babies. I delivered breeches and twins and things that I'd never been trained for, but it all turned out pretty well. But I realized I didn't care for the anything except internal medicine. So that's why I decided to go back to Richmond to the Medical College of Virginia and become an internist. In my second year of internal medicine residency... I was approached, in fact, taken to dinner by two of the GI faculty, and they told me why I wanted to be a gastroenterologist. So I did two more years of that, then went to a large clinic in Indiana near Fort Wayne for three years of practice, then moved back to Richmond in 1975 and practiced gastroenterology in a multi-specialty group until I retired in 2013.
0: Can you tell me a little bit what it was like to be a volunteer for MCC back in the 60s? Yes,
1: yes. Uh, It was actually voluntary service. Voluntary service was a very popular and prominent program within the Mennonite church. We didn't live in house with other people, but in the same community with other volunteers, some of whom were nurses, some of whom were carpenters. Our salary was low, like it always was for VS. We got $15 a month, plus room and board. And my salary went to MCC to fund other parts of their program. It was a very interesting experience for a 26-year-old in a community, whereas as a physician, I was afforded some honor or a privilege, and was, I got very involved in giving speeches about alcoholism, and then uh, president of the Cancer Society, we organized the pap smear clinics out in the hollers and found five cases of uh, cervical carcinoma the first year, and so I was very, very involved in those activities in the community as well as uh, education within the hospital, all of which I enjoyed.
0: Besides telling you that you really preferred internal medicine as a specialty, how else did that shape your future career at that time in Eastern Kentucky?
1: There were no Mennonite churches anywhere near. So we became Presbyterians for four years and sang in the choir and taught Sunday school. So I think that having grown up in a pretty confined or narrow Mennonite community, it was a good chance to interact with people of other faiths and to learn to know them. In fact, interestingly, my my best friend, another general practitioner, was a Baptist, and we visited his church, and we had a lot of uh, theological discussions. One Mennonite tenet that he liked was non-swearing of oaths, so he said, the next time I have to swear a to swear an oath, I'm going to affirm, because that's what you do, and that's what I should do. So he affirmed his way into the U.S. Army, which I thought was kind of interesting.
0: Did you mention the irony of that to him?
1: I'm not sure he appreciated that, you know, (laughs) Uh, he didn't uh, pick up on the peace position, but he really liked affirmation instead of swearing.
0: You spent a long time as a gastroenterologist. What about that career that was most gratifying to you?
1: Obviously, I like people and I really enjoyed interacting with a whole variety of personalities and of course, a variety of diseases, some of them simple or some of them frustrating, some of them tragic or difficult. So I liked the interpersonal part of it, the relationships I developed uh, particularly over years with many patients who became friends. And then when uh, the scopes came along, when the colonoscopes and gastroscopes came along, I liked the technical aspects of that. In fact, one of the men I trained under asked me to come to the veterans hospital and teach colonoscopy. And I said, well, I've never done one. He said, well, no, that's not a problem. So what I did, I, I went to Walter Reed several times where my Classmate was chief of GI, and I watched a few, and then I watched one or two in Richmond, and then we started out, and after six months, we were pretty good, and we didn't have any uh, complications, and uh, so over the years, I did many, many colonoscopies and gastroscopies, and my specialty, I went to the Veterans Hospital every Thursday for 37 years to teach, to teach GI fellows, And my specialty was uh, esophageal manometry. I was the local expert, regional expert on that. And so I trained many, many GI docs throughout practicing and using that as they needed. And it was just a very good experience for me, that that teaching at the Veterans Hospital that made me part of the faculty at the medical college where I had graduated. Also, I was one of the founding members of an organization, and I guess medical people won't, won't be bothered by this, but The Richmond Gut Club met about every two months, and we would share cases and talk about how to treat them. It was combining town and gown. The professors from the medical school and the practitioners in the community would meet, usually with a meal, sometimes with a sponsorship by a drug company, and sometimes with guest lecturers who were really pretty good. So it was a very nice collegial educational experience that I really enjoyed uh, I enjoyed it at the hospital where I worked, journal club and other educational sessions, and giving speeches on various things was was fun. As well as the, as the national meetings, I really enjoyed because you could learn something and uh, see many former fellows that I had helped train. I would say that the two parts of GI that I liked were the interpersonal relationships and the technical, the, the, the procedural part of it as well. In fact, I used to joke that my practice was two-thirds video games, and one-third psychiatry, since a lot of what I treated was irritable bowel syndrome, thought to be a psychological disease, but now we know it's actually caused by uh, probably some infection or some autoimmune aspect of disease. But I treated that pretty well. I, I learned how to treat that very well. It was harder than, say, diagnosing a cancer, but more gratifying when the patients improved.
0: I'm sure there's lots of jokes for GI docs. And so I appreciate your humor when talking about your specialty.
1: I will mention, I tried to get a specialty license plate GI Joe, but it was already taken. I assume somebody in the Pentagon already had that, but so I never got my specialty license plate. So.
0: I was thinking about colonoscopies. It's not everybody's favorite thing. It's no one's favorite thing. How did you talk your patients into getting them or, or how did you explain to them the importance of getting a colonoscopy?
1: I think many of them knew it simply by hearing TV and radio and print directives, how important it was. But if I explained that, you know, you're you're 50 or more and you, you know, the, the odds are improved by, by just taking a look and making sure there's nothing there, a polyp there that would become a cancer. And most of them agreed to do that. In fact, there was a small segment of my population that wanted it every two years. It's supposed to be every five or 10 years, but some people were so anxious about it, they wanted it every two years and uh, had to talk to them out of that.
0: I have appreciated your mentorship being on the MHF board and having you as one of my mentors. How did you approach mentorship through your years as a Mennonite physician?
1: Uh, I had uh, several mentors, one medical mentor, a couple years older than me, a Jewish man, still practicing at the VA. Uh, he was a faculty member in Richmond and he goes to the veterans hospital now and oversees procedures. Just a very, Good teacher and, and good person. My role, actually, in Richmond, there were 55 Mennonite medical students during the time I was there, from various parts of the church, and most of them came to church and we developed a relationship there. So, a few of them worked with me for a month in my in my office, and so I was able to combine medical knowledge or conversation with, with some of the um, broader issues of ethics and and some of the issues that any practitioner phases, obviously, in my specialty of GI. And so that was a very good relationship. And I, they're, they're all over the place, these former students that I mentored, uh, along with other physicians in our church. But that was a very nice relationship
0: that I had. I'm sure that those conversations that you had with those students have stayed with those students and have affected their practice to make them better physicians. What has kept you busy during your retirement?
1: I was born with a love of organization and meetings. I don't know what went wrong, but uh, from little up, that really appealed to me. In fact, the family story is that in grade school, I organized the other students. They went out on the playground and collected all the metal they could find, brought it to me. I cataloged and counted and cataloged so many screws, so many nails, so many whatever. And so that something about my mind just enjoys organization. And so... Everywhere I go, there are people looking for someone to be chair a committee or be on a committee. And my wife used to say that there was one two-letter word I couldn't pronounce, which was no. So I wound up on many different committees. And that happened here when I came to Harrisonburg. I'm I've been on committees at church. I organize our Sunday school class and teach. I'm chair of a committee for the Virginia Mennonite Conference, which puts me on another committee. Of course, now they're virtual, but I just really enjoy committee work when it's when it's done well. And I think I've learned how to do them. I I also have, I'm a social person. So I, until March the 15th, I was doing a lot of things with other people in person. Now I put a mask on and keep my distance and still interact with people. And of course um, I've done scores of Zoom meetings uh, since uh, the pandemic and never had done one before. And now it's uh, kind of not old hat exactly, but it's easily done.
0: I feel confident that those institutions and those committees that you're working on appreciate your, your work and your dedication. You've been an incredible support to MHF with your time, your attendance, and your gifts. Thank you for that. What do you see as the main mission of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship going forward? Why have you stayed I, I, so involved?
1: Well, I, I've stayed involved because I enjoy the work and I'm asked to do it, but I really think it's a good, it's a good organization with a good mission. And the number one mission, as I understand it, and I believe as I stated, is to allow for, encourage, uh, and uh, foster dialogue between various healthcare practitioners, rather than each one isolated on their own, working in a situation where the peer pressure they're under or the decisions they need to make are made in isolation. They can come together either in person or in other ways with other members of MHF and hear about the same dilemmas and the same ethical and moral issues other people are facing, whether it be end-of-life decisions or uh, whether it be stewardship or ethical issues related to availability or access to care. So I just think that, that providing a place where Anabaptist uh, Christians together can think and talk and enhance whatever their own individual activities or actions might have been, But a second reason uh, for the MHF to exist is that I think it's a place where, as a gathered body of committed Christian practitioners, it can focus on some of the larger issues in health and healthcare and share those learnings and recommendations with the larger church and and with society. Uh, It's a sort of uh, consciousness-raising This group of dedicated healthcare people, they're sort of expert witnesses who can share what they've learned and what they see and what they can predict and what they would recommend and encourage uh, others to do. So I I think that's an important role for MHF. Under the uh, Medical Association, that was a little more prominent. There were uh, national uh, church meetings or publications where the voice of that organization was sought and, and shared. And I am hoping and believe that already uh, some of that is, all, is happening with MHF as, as well.
0: Can you tell me about some of the ways that you've been involved with MHF?
1: It goes back to the Mennonite Medical Association. I was a member, then I became president, and uh, I've been on various committees. And then when MHF was formed, I was actually on a committee to recommend that, that merger between the, the nurses and the doctors' associations and sort of implement the, the initial steps. So I've been president of the board, on the board, on subcommittees, and of course a regular member. Looking forward to attending the meetings as well as reading the what used to be a, a journal, a monthly journal or tri-monthly journal, but now um, on on the web. And so I just and, and there have been regional meetings here in Harrisonburg. We've had a number of regional meetings with people from around the church. Uh, Glenn Miller, who wrote a book on dying, came and presented that work to various audiences under our uh, sponsorship. Beth Good gave a speech at EMU uh, about her medical work under MCC in Africa. So I think that just uh, the chance to help plan and implement and promote activities, whether it be one individual going to a national meeting, annual meeting, or a group of people Uh, talking together about a a particular topic, or inviting the uh, community in to learn what what we might have to share.
0: Joe, I wanted to talk to you about your last 18 months. You've had an incredibly tragic year. Can you tell me a bit about this?
1: Yes. My wife and I got married in 1958 when I was a senior in college. She had graduated from Goshen and was teaching in, in one of the local schools, and so after 60 years, uh, during that period of time, things happened. In 1997, she developed a malignancy of the sinuses, which was successfully treated by an expert at UVA, one of the probably the best surgeon in the country for that rare, rare tumor. She then became a volunteer in his clinic, uh, went up twice uh, a week for 11 years to, to help with uh, moving patients and mostly to talk to people who had the same rare tumor and were uneasy about it. And she said that that became a ministry for her, that if she hadn't had the cancer, she never would have gotten the chance to meet all these people and to help them through a difficult period. At any rate, that was an important thing that she did for a long period of time. We moved here after I, after I retired, I did my last colonoscopy in February of 2013. We moved here three months later into the Virginia Mennonite retirement community and uh, did uh, various activities Uh, our daughter our older daughter lives here but Constance uh, began to develop neurological symptoms trouble walking eventually to the point she couldn't walk and I had to I was her caregiver for about five years and uh, after she couldn't walk I would uh, transport her around transport her around the house on a transport chair we took lots of trips Uh, we went many places and uh, about four months before she died in February of 2019, she developed a cancer of the pancreas, which was untreatable, basically. And so uh, that added to the complexity that she died here at home in February of 2019, uh, about two weeks after my brother died in Newport News, and a month before my 56-year-old nephew died of a heart attack. And uh, obviously, that was a a shock, a jolt. And uh, she and I talked quite a lot about when you get married, you say for better and for worse uh, in sickness and in health, but you don't really think about it as young people. You just say the words, they're, they're part of the vows. But the odds are that one or the other of you is going to go first. In this case, it happened to be her. Usually it's the man. And so uh, I, I knew it was coming. I had sort of anticipatory grief. I, I was aware of where we were headed. That didn't really make it easier, but at least it wasn't a shock. And then I got support from my family and from my friends and from my church. And this past May, uh, May the 23rd, my older daughter's husband, 56 years old, was killed in an auto accident on I-81. And, of course, uh, that was an even greater shock. And my wife's death was not untimely after 60 years of marriage, and she was 82. So it's kind of what happens. But he was in the prime of life. and just totally out of the blue, this, this happened. And that was more of a shock uh, to me and, of course, to her her and her children. So, again, uh, and, of course, it was in the midst of the pandemic. So we couldn't have a funeral, couldn't have a service. We had it for my wife, but for him it was a virtual service with the only family in in the church. Very well done and attended by 500-some people. So it was – and that, you know again, didn't make it go away, but it – was the kind of support and uh, affirmation of his life that uh, we felt from, from many quarters. So these things happen and uh, you read about them in the paper and think, well, I'm sorry, but tell us in your own family, it doesn't have quite the impact, but uh, we're she's coming around and getting through it and uh, we'll, we'll, time will help, but for now it's, it's, it is difficult.
0: Yes, I can only imagine how difficult this has been for you and your family and your daughter, especially for your daughter and her family. Um, Very telling uh, the story about Constance's resilience and how she met this first cancer and said that it gave her the opportunity to share with others. And that's an amazing story of resilience. And I hear the same theme um, with you and her caregiving You were her primary caregiver for five years. I can only imagine how exhausting that must have been. But again, the resilience of your love for her and then the thoughtfulness with which you decided how you would pursue or not pursue treatment when she developed a pancreatic cancer. And now we have another story of resilience in your daughter and her family and how they're kind of going day by day as they recoup their life and decide how to move on. Um, and thank you for the story of uh, like how how it is important to have a funeral and how COVID has really changed that important ritual of our life and changed our grieving and how we do it as a community but again a story of resilience and that they were able to do it creatively and still have a celebration of life for your (sighs) son-in-law grief is a hard hard thing What's been giving you strength through all this?
1: Well, I would say I think my faith, and of course, uh, uh, my family, my friends, and you know, just uh, the ability to look back uh, and see all the positives in the midst of uh, the losses and the negatives. Um, I'll, I'll mention that uh, my granddaughter, who is in Memphis working for a year in a, in a series of clinics, Christian clinics that are scattered around in. Uh, underprivileged neighborhoods, so she's doing a good thing. She was in in Uganda under MCC as part of the SALT program, serving and learning together, uh, teaching HIV education to teenagers and had to come home early because of the the virus. So she did about two-thirds of the year and came back in April, I think. And she has applied to medical schools and is now working in these clinics as a medical scribe. To burnish your application, and so I think that I I, I didn't say earlier, but I I think uh, healthcare. Obviously, I practice medicine, but healthcare in general is a good field, and even medicine is still a good field. Uh, It's very different from when I started, but uh, it's a chance to minister, to serve, to make a difference, to contribute, and to do so in so many different ways. In medicine, there's so many different specialties and uh, situations and locations where you can do healthcare, and the same is true of all the other healthcare disciplines. So, it's it's a very good, uh, broad general field, and I think that I would encourage and do encourage young people to continue to think of of healthcare and uh, and go into it, knowing it's going to be very different from what what I experience, and even different from what they're seeing as they start. It's still a good field.
0: I agree. I love taking care of my patients. When you think about the future, and you had when you think back on your career and your time with MHF and your mentoring of students, what what about the future does concern you the most? And and how do you think that Anabaptists in healthcare can bring about change to better our healthcare and in our country?
1: I would say that personally, I'm I'm not sure what my future role. I have you know medical problems, but they're I'm I'm not symptomatic and I'm very functional. I have very severe mitral insufficiency and I'm talking to the uh, cardiac surgery is with the surgery surgeon. And so I'm going to have an angiogram to see if I need surgery and that's fine. If I do fine, if I don't fine, I'm very much at peace about that. I'm not as much at peace about our country. I think our country's in a really bad way. (laughs) And uh, obviously the the dilemma is that as one individual, what can I do? And so obviously I can work for peace. Uh, The Virginia conference committees I'm on, Uh, We're going to have two years of very strong anti-racism activities, required uh, activities for all pastors and other leaders. And uh, that's been developed with the uh, cooperation or not cooperation, collaboration of our black leaders. So it's, and I've been in the middle of that on my committees. I hope that uh, we can find political leaders who are less political and more willing to work with everybody. And I think that as far as the church, both Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship, but all of us, I think that uh, we need uh, vision and we need courage. And in, in order for those two things to take place, we need leaders and leadership. And so I think, uh, yes, all of us have a responsibility and have a role. But historically, it's at some point, someone steps forward and say, listen, let me tell you where we are, but let me tell you also where we can go or where we can be and here's what we need to do to get there. And I think that uh, if within my denomination or Anabaptist Fellowship, that can happen, the larger community, the larger society and the nation can learn from that and uh, hopefully benefit. So I think that the very things that we've taught uh, but sort of kept to ourselves for years are needed uh, more broadly and we shouldn't be too bashful, not cram things down people's throat, but simply share. Uh, let me tell you about uh, what I believe and why. And of course, even more, live it out. And, and that may help convince others or help others see it's not a bad
0: way to go. Thanks, Joe, for your stories, for your humor, for your inspiration when it comes to these tough 18 months that you have lived through. Thank you for your words of wisdom. And thank you to all our listeners for being part of the conversation about health and faith on Menno HealthCast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with Anabaptist World. We want to hear from you, so please go to our website and click on the link in the top right corner or email us at info at We invite you to financially support the mission of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship to help continue this dialogue about the intersection of faith and health. Musical credits go to Paul Schlitz. Editing and production credits to Eugene Stevanis. And I'm your host, Joanne Hunsberger. Please join us again next time.